Welcome back to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast. I'm Dr. Michaela Benson, a reader in sociology at Goldsmiths, University of London, and the research lead for a UK and a changing Europe funded project that's all about what Brexit means for British citizens living in the EU 27. It's an underestimation to say that there has been a lot going on with Brexit over the last few weeks. But I wanted to turn away from the political turbulence a little, or at least reposition this back within the context of people's lives. It's important that we remember at this time that there are real lives at the heart of Brexit that are set to be impacted by Brexit. Today, I wanted to introduce you to two stories. Uh, It's a rather ambitious thing that I'm going to try to do in bringing them together. But two stories which illustrate how migration takes place, what shapes that, the conditions under which people move and settle, and the things that happen in their lives, which might mean that their experience of onward migration, of movement, might be different, or indeed their ability to move on or move back. These are two stories that I've selected as a way of highlighting the complex life circumstances that some people are facing and how Brexit might be intervening in those in a variety of different ways. I'm going to introduce you to Millie from Cyprus and to Roy and Jane who live in France. So without further ado, here's Millie talking about how she first came to live in Europe. I wanted to find a job in Italy. It was my intention to move back there because I really loved it. And I happened to see an advert for a language school in Greece that were looking for a teacher of English. And this was a position that was going to be for three months. And I thought, yeah, three months in Greece, I'll go there. And then while I'm there, I'll spend the time looking for something else and go back to Italy. So off I went to Greece. (laughs) Only three months was not really three months in the end. It turned into many years. The language school that I went to, they offered me a longer contract, which I initially accepted. So I stayed in northern Greece in a place that many British people won't have heard of, I expect. I think it's quite a common story that people go abroad to teach languages. And I think one of the things that often uh, comes up when I speak to people about this is the kind of going to a place that you've never been before, which to some people seems slightly incomprehensible that you would go and try out yes, living somewhere different. People say that to me, of course, many times in the past, but I don't see it at all like that. I think it is a challenge, something exciting and new. And of course, I was young, I was 23 years old. So Fearless. Yeah, <laughs> a lot in ahead of me. I wanted to you know, experience life there. And on my very first day, I thought, right, I've got to start learning some Greek. Why not? <laughs> I didn't expect to learn a lot because I thought I'll be there for three months. But as it turns out, I became completely fluent and took exams in Greek and uh, I've worked as a translator as well. Millie's story of travel and arrival in Greece and her eventual accidental settlement in Greece as she met and married her Greek partner contrasts quite significantly to Roy and Jane's story of migration. In her 40s, Jane was diagnosed with a neurological condition which meant that she was wheelchair-bound. And it was with this pre-existing health condition 
that her and Roy decided for a variety of reasons, as they explain, to move to France. Let's hear what they have to say about that decision. Morning, Jane. Morning. How are you? Good one, thank you. Oh, nice to see you. Good to see you too. Yeah. Hi, Hello. Hello. <laughs> are you okay? Yeah, I'm good. Oh. Temperature's tamed a bit, hasn't it? It has, just overnight, definitely. So. The reasons we bought the house, our holiday home, was because we just wanted to be part of France. It was idyllic. The pace of life was so much slower, which was what we liked, wasn't it? Mm. Um, Could really relax. It. Because in, in Kent, it's madness. It was in madness in 2002 when we left, and it began to get difficult when we bought our second home that was in 1990 mm. and the intention was to move to there because it was a plot of land we could build a house there but um it didn't work out like that with my illness um because it was quite damp because we were right by a forest we had a trailer tent and we'd been on holiday with that and we were actually looking for maybe buying a little piece of land because the children were getting older to put the trailer tent in France, so we didn't have to keep bringing it to and fro. And then we spotted this piece of land from the road in right in the middle of the Cressy Forest, which was really nice. But we went back to see it with the agent because there was a slight long grass and a bit of a hillock on it. We never realised there was actually a wooden cabin on the property, which we didn't even know was there. We no, we no, we didn't. Not house. It's just land. But we ended up selling the trailer tent and just keeping the house, didn't we? In, and, and we were a carpenter. It was a wooden house, so it was ideal for him. Yeah, reno- it? renovated it. So when you moved here in 2002, how old were you both? 43. 43. 44. So you'd moved here with the intention of having to make some kind of income. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's when, when we were looking for the house here. We were looking for something that would give us an income. And we, the first house we bought was a house, one of the styled houses where you got the house up above and an apartment down below. So we used to rent the apartment out or we just did bed and breakfast from and it. I was, I was doing building work as well. Oh, yeah. But yeah. I was able to, because, again, because of Jane's health, the re, one of the reasons we left England was because if we'd have stayed in England long term, I would have been working to pay for a carer to care for Jane. Crooks of the thing was, but coming to France... And running a business at home, i.e. maybe still doing a little bit of building locally in the village, because I'm, you know, obviously a qualified builder, so I could do that in the village, not far away from the base. So that was really the main reason that I could actually be here. So a main for me, the main thing when we come here was to care in for Jane. The second was to earn an income for us to live on. But the most important thing for me was to get here and try and, and improve Jane's health and care for her. That So I suppose I came here as a carer more than a worker. But yes, we still had to work to earn money to live. I think when I first came over, at that stage, you were in a wheelchair, Jane. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. I was in, in the wheelchair the last year I was in England and we bought it with us. But the intention was, I was going to, once I got to the doctors, once you settled in, I got to the doctors, the GP, I'd get into a hospital to get the Parkinson's confirmed because 
they weren't happy with the results of England. They said, no, they wanted to check it all out themselves. So once I got in, into the hospital system, it took a couple more, two, two or three years mm. to get everything analysed. And yes, what we got, this is what we can do. Jane proceeded to explain to me the very complex health conditions that she's had, the regime of treatment that means that she can continue walking, that maintains a quality of life. And Roy explained how being in France has meant that he can provide care for Jane in a way that would not have been possible were they to have stayed in the UK. For them, anything which threatens this status quo that they've achieved, this particular quality of life, this very embodied quality of life that Jane is able to experience, is something that they're very afraid of. So Brexit for them presents a significant challenge, as Jane describes. That does worry me, what's going to happen after Brexit. If they take all that away... You'll be in bed. What I'm saying is the government are killing me. And people like me. Anybody, anybody who's got an illness, what I'd like to do, I'd like to give my illness to them. And I'd like to say, right, take my illness now, just for, for six months, with Brexit and see how you get on. We just feel so insecure at the moment. We've managed to control pretty well everything with regards to Jane's health and, you know, it's all these wonderful teams I said to you about earlier that look after her. And people in the UK, oh, it'll all be all right. Oh, it'll be fine. You we, know, we my can... father, our friends, Jane's yeah. father, our friends, oh, you're worrying, it'll be fine. Jane so clearly communicates the profound impact that Brexit has had on her life. The extent to which it has generated uncertainties for her about whether she will continue to have access to treatment. And while both her and Roy are very well aware of the negotiations and what's been said about um, maintaining access to life-supporting healthcare, she is still very uncertain about what this could mean and she sees this as deeply irresponsible. And it's here that I want to come back to Millie and to her story. We left Millie living in Greece and since then she's got married and she's had children and because of challenges presented in terms of finding work or maintaining work in the Greek economy following the crisis, her husband and her took the very difficult decision to move their family, including their son who has special needs, to Cyprus. Let's hear a little bit more about that decision. You moved to another Greek-speaking country. Do you want to talk a little bit about the types of preparations that you had to make because of thinking about how, I suppose, to keep life as stable as possible for your son who has special needs? Yes. Before we made our decision, I researched the system in Cyprus for the education system, first of all, for special needs. I knew that the mainstream education would be very similar to the Greek system. And I also knew that they used some of the same books and things like that. But that would be mainstream. I wasn't worried about my other children. I have three children. But I knew that they would be okay. And I found that a lot of children are very adaptable wherever they go. They're okay. They settle in. They make friends and so on. 
But for my other son, I wanted to see firstly how the system worked for special needs, what they did. Would they be isolated in a special school? Would they be integrated in some way? What was the situation? So I researched all of that. I wanted to find out what documentation I would need. Would I need letters from doctors, letters from ministers? <laughs> I didn't know what I would need. So I had to find out all of that. And I knew, of course, well, Greece is highly bureaucratic. You need bits of doc- papers for everything you do, documents, stamps, signatures, in triplicate, whatever you need to do. So I thought maybe Cyprus will be similar because <laughs> it's another, it's basically Greek culture. <laughs> so I had to find out all of those details before I could decide anything. Having then decided that, found out about the education system, we had to look at the medical side, you know, what care would be available, what would we have to pay for, what would be provided by the state, all the details, not just for the other children who might have the occasional, I don't know, a bit of flu or need a vaccination or whatever it is, but more specifically for our younger son, because he needs more regular contact with the medical care. So this is even before you move. So this is not a move that oh, yeah. is undertaken in any way lightly. It's not a decision I could make from one day to the next. Absolutely not. <laughs> I had to find out all these things first. I mean, I understand um, from our earlier discussions that you're not actually worried about what Brexit's going to mean for you. But having gone through that process of planning, that process of settlement, of settling a child with special needs, you do have concerns for other people, I think, who find themselves in a similar situation but might not have the securities that you do. Yes, exactly. I am the spouse of an EU national, a Greek national. I have the right to reside in Greece. At the moment, Cyprus also gives me that right. I don't know in the future. There are no guarantees about the future. That's the first thing. The second thing, I'm thinking about British citizens, let's say a couple who have a child with special needs. Both of the parents have British nationality. They don't have any EU nationality. They are stuck. They're stuck because um, they won't automatically have the right to reside. You might think, ah, yes, but they've been, the EU has said this and they've said that, but this is contingent on the deals in Brexit. Under no deal, there are no guarantees anymore. And the EU has said, well, we might do this, but might is not the same as definitely yes, is it? <laughs> exactly. That's the first thing. Secondly, even with the deals that have been promised, tables, <laughs> what shall we say with the current upheavals, who knows? Uh, even with those, there is a minimum income requirement for residency rights. And you might think, well, that's perfectly reasonable, okay. But people forget that when you have child with special needs, your income is going to go down. There's no two ways about it. That is what happens. There are various reasons for this. Okay, the first reason is the lack of care, adequate care for these children. It doesn't seem to matter which country you live in. I've spoken to people in Britain, in the Czech Republic, in Greece, in all over the place. There is not enough care. The government will say, yes, equal rights for all, but it's only on paper. The reality is that Institutions that provide care for young children do not take children with special needs. They will find all kinds of loopholes, they will find all kinds of excuses, I've heard all of them, as to why not, but it all boils down to, we don't want this child. 
And there's, I mean, this is within a broader context of a social care crisis across Europe as well, isn't it? So Yes, yeah, it is, it is, but it's even worse, <laughs> yeah. because at least when you have other children, you can find a childminder, even a casual one, even if it's not in some sort of institution. When you have a child with special needs, the, suddenly the childminder will say, oh, no, I don't think I can cope with that. That's it. Unless you've got a willing grandmother or somebody who lives nearby, that's not a lot you can do. So people end up unemployed. Who's going to employ you when you have to leave every five minutes to sort out mm. your child's needs? Impossible. You've end up working from home or you know, doing some sort of part-time work or whatever it is. So it can be very tough. Yeah. Obviously, this means that your income is going to go down. Yeah. And that coupled with the expenses involved, even if all of your medical care is covered by the state, and it isn't always, there are many states that don't provide complete medical care, they might have to, you might have to top it up or you know, pay a certain percentage or whatever. Even in those cases, you've got to think about the petrol to and fro, because you will be going back and forth, back and forth from the clinics, from uh, speech therapists, uh, occupational therapists, physiotherapists, etc., uh, etc., et and it all adds up. You might think, "Oh, but it's not much; it's just a little every day." But it's a little every single day, and sometimes you have to travel a long way. There might be a clinic out of town. It might be that the only physio who can help you is in the next town. No guarantees. <laughs> So it all starts. It all starts to add up, and it all takes away from what is an already depreciating income. Yeah. yeah. Some parents. This isn't in my case. It wasn't necessary, but I noticed some parents have had to buy equipment. This can take various forms. Sometimes you might be just talking about a wheelchair. Sometimes it might be some other, you know, some leg braces or all sorts of things that you might need, or special breathing apparatus. Or, you know, there's a lot. And one of the reasons for you moving to Cyprus, as you explained, was because it's a Greek-speaking country. Yes, yes. My son was already in Greek medium education back in Greece, and I didn't want to change that. In our case, when you have a child with special needs, it's very difficult you know, to suddenly throw them into a new language. People will be afraid of regression, and yeah. it is a very real fear you suddenly take them into a new place, language that they don't know. How are they going to cope? They've already got various cognitive difficulties and problems, various kinds. I'm not going to list all the possibilities. I'd be here all day. Yeah. Bearing in mind these problems, how are they going to cope with another language? And it's so also bearing... A new language, yeah. a new culture, because the whole system will be different. The whole setup is different. The times of day that you do things are different in a different country. Little things, but... All of them add up. My understanding is that, you know, having a child who has special needs, you are constantly trying to incrementally make their life as comfortable as possible. And so to move them to a situation where there would be so many things having changed would be a very big risk. It would be a big risk. And you would fear that they might close in on themselves. They might um, go backwards. Especially the regression is a lot that a lot of people tend to miss on worried about that worry that uh, they wouldn't be able to respond well and get anything from this uh, from a new environment it's not at all a a simple matter you had you ever considered moving to the uk when there were problems in greece absolutely not (laughs) no 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 
I know a lot of people will be surprised and think, oh, but, you know, the economy, but the economy is not everything. <laughs> it really isn't. It's important, yes, and we all need to have money or we can't eat. <laughs> but, no, I don't want to move back to the UK. I don't like the system for special needs in the UK. I think, it, actually, I think Cyprus is streets ahead in this respect. I'm really happy with the system here. For At least my son is doing very well. I don't like the attitudes either that maybe because here it's quite a small country yeah. I find that people have been very open very welcoming and they've treated my son especially very well they consider him they take him into account and yet I hear stories from the UK of children who are routinely excluded who don't have a good education basis there are all kinds of problems there and the NHS what can I say it's being dismantled it's <laughs> Things are not so good. And for a child with special needs, you need healthcare. Yeah. And you're going to have to be worrying about it. Yeah. So Britain definitely wouldn't offer that panacea for solving some of the other issues that you were facing a few years ago. So. No, no, no. It's not. There is, I don't believe in panaceas, to be honest, and utopias. I think it's a pipe dream. Yeah, I could move back to the UK. And what would I do then? Yes, my son would suddenly be in a new environment. He speaks an amount of English, but the system is completely different. The whole culture is different. The way that he'd be treated would be different. He wouldn't be in the uh, education system that he is in now, which I think would be an enormous disadvantage. (laughs) Uh, Friends that he's making now, they wouldn't be speaking the same language, and he'd have to suddenly cope with that. He's used to English from me, and from my family members, is not used to English at school. And that might seem small, but it is quite big for these children. Definitely, definitely. I think it's important that as we move towards understanding the impacts of Brexit, that we recognise how these take place within the context of people's lives. Both of the accounts that I've introduced today help to demonstrate something of the complexity of those lives. I don't think that I could have picked two examples that were further from the stereotypes that we generally have about British populations who live abroad. They also highlight that considerations over the future, whether that is to move on, to stay put or to return to Britain, are caught up with important questions about how to maintain access to healthcare, how to maintain a particular level of care for families who are in need, for individuals who are disabled or who have complex healthcare needs. And this is what comes across so clearly in talking to Millie and in talking to Roy and Jane. You'll remember that In both cases, it's really clear that providing that social care within the context of the family and having adequate support in order to do that, along with having regular access to healthcare and to treatments, are central to them maintaining the status quo in their lives. I think it's unsurprising then that for people who have a complex set of health and social care needs, that any threat to this carefully put together system of support, which draws on some state support, but also significant personal and family resource, that anything that destabilises that 
would be experienced as a threat. And this is what we are picking up through our research with British citizens who live in the European Union. And it's these stories that I think need to be told in a time when we're starting to consider what the likely impact is and the uneven outcomes of Brexit are for this population. You've been listening to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast hosted by me, Dr Michaela Benson, and produced by Emma Halton at Art of Podcast. The series is part of a UK and a Changing Europe funded research project, Brexit Brits Abroad, that's all about what Brexit means for UK citizens living in the EU 27. We're really keen to hear from you about the issues and concerns we address in the programme, so please do get in touch with any thoughts, queries and questions. You can find our contact details on our webpage, Brexit Brits Abroad, or get in touch via social media. We're on Twitter at BrexPatsEU and we have a Facebook page, Brexit Brits Abroad. Finally, in case you're not already subscribed to the podcast, you can do so on both iTunes and Google Podcasts. Thank you for listening and I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode.